And I think underneath too, this drive, this this depression is actually it's the authentic English being that is imitated father to son, mother to daughter. It's been disconnected from its its true place of where it belongs. And that's not just a trivial thing. It's not if I don't know if you're a materialist or not, but it literally that's where we came from. It's the sort of the land itself originally. It's in our being. It comes into your being. It's brought into your being. And so you're living in these hell holes on antidepressant. That's an authentic response to something, to be depressed. That's your being calling, saying something's wrong. Get out. Return to where you belong. You know? And I, th- I think also there's a, there's a reason why when you made a uh, long time ago, you actually had a video about this, is that they were already attacking English identity back in 2008 or 2005. You had a video about St. George's Day that you, mm. they were banning flags. And so the white pill we can take from that a bit is why there's a, there's a reason why they go after it is there's something innate in it that's ultra powerful that they want to keep under wraps. Or else why attack it so much? It would have to be a danger to them, right? Is that that means there's this brewing potential underneath that people? Well, yeah, go. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's a unifying innate natural resource mm. and that's why they want everyone atomized that's why they want people living in in anthill steel and glass towers that's why they want people estranged from their family mm. uh, because you know they want them atomized they want them dependent on the state they want them dependent on this regime narrative where you have to hold these certain beliefs otherwise your friends are going to disavow you you're going to lose your job you know, you're going to lose your bank, your Twitter account or whatever. Uh, they want people unified in their regime messaging. And that's why they need to destroy the authentic alternative narrative, which is exactly what you said. Family, mm. tradition, country, culture. Mm. That's why they want to undermine it, subvert it, sabotage it, because it creates a generation of nowhere people who yeah. can then be easily manipulated, gelded locked down both mentally and physically and torn away from their true innate mm. destiny in life and mm. not just in a philosophical sense a, a pretentious mm. sense but in a very real yes happiness sense i mean you're not happy going on like fucking you porn and staring at your phone for three hours in a morning dragging yeah. yourself downstairs eating sugar-filled cereal watching mm. television and then basically sitting on your arse all day and doing nothing, and then wondering why you're depressed. You're not supposed to live like that. That's yeah. a pathetic, Weasley existence. But that's the existence that's being pushed on them by the regime, by the establishment. And family, tradition, country, you know, uh, all those bucolic pursuits that we've discussed, mm. you know, hiking, shooting, name them, is, is what takes you away from that, is what gets you out in the real world, is what gets yes. you reconnected with the real world, with nature itself. And that's what makes you happy. Yes. You're never going to be made happy by pursuing money, by pursuing drugs, by pursuing women, by pursuing fame or whatever. The only thing that's ever going to make you happy is family, tradition, mm. country, reconnecting with nature. You know, it's no secret. It's been that way for the entirety of yeah. human history. and nothing, nothing much has changed, has it? Today I'm talking with polemicist, broadcaster Paul Joseph Watson. We delve into his background to examine North Anglo-Saxon values, the rural ideal, English ways of being, and the move towards tradition and to restore Englishness. So I hope you enjoy it. That's a kind of interesting thing. I mean, when I was hanging out with you in uh, Battersea, I, I, uh, I remember I said to you, um, you didn't seem that high Tory because you lived in London. And then you said to me, <laughs> and then you said to me, well, I actually came from the country. You lived the country life, and you said you'd return to it at some stage. And it does seem like you've actually yeah. done, you've done that. Now you've re- you've returned to it, and I remember looking at a video of yours, I, I uh, in when we, before setting this up, uh, and you ten years ago you recorded a video which said uh, peace, uh, beauty, and freedom. Remember what we're fighting for, and it was just a picture that it was a video of the countryside. So yeah. I mean, this this English ideal is Im- important to a lot of people, and it does seem like that it, it is to you, and you've sort of returned to it. I mean, how? Well, I mean, that, Why that's, did you that's what go, go. That's what I came from. I, I grew up in North Sheffield. I was born and lived in villages in North Sheffield. And it, it was kind of suburban, but, you know, out there, everything's a bit more wild. So it's definitely more rural than suburban. It's kind of bucolic. And so that's where I came from, basically. That's where I lived 
you know, most of my life, that's how I grew up. I was a very free range kid. I mean, that's what I was thinking today, even in like the middle class areas where you think everything was nice and safe and cozy. You don't see teenage kids riding their bikes around. You don't see them in the park. You don't see them playing football. That was literally my entire life up until the age of about, you know, 14, 15. It was completely free range. We were just left to roam between different villages, different areas, and there was no problem whatsoever with it. And, you know, when you when you grow up in that kind of lifestyle, you do develop this kind of stoicism, this kind of hard-headed nature, this kind of bloody-mindedness, just naturally from the land and from roaming around the villages in these kind of rural areas. And that's what I was thinking about earlier today. I don't even see kids doing that anymore. Of course, back in the day, we didn't have iPhones. We didn't have PlayStations. We didn't have the internet. But I think that's taken away, a, a lot away from that kind of innate, authentic, authentic bucolic upbringing that people of my generation had. And people of this generation don't, which is why they're also, you know, closeted, and coddled yeah. and deadly afraid of words and deadly yeah. afraid of arguments and confrontations with people. But, you know, to me growing up, that was, that was, it, everything was about confrontation and everything was about hardship. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't have much money at all. The Daily Beast did a hit piece about me <laughs> about three <laughs> years ago and they went back to where I grew up. Really? Because I'd, I'd mentioned before in interviews and stuff, oh, yeah, I grew up on a council estate and it was pretty mm-hmm. tough. Obviously, since then, the houses are now worth 20 times more. Yeah. But my yeah. parents did buy their first house, uh, a council house under the whole Thatcher thing. And, you know, we never had any money. I can literally remember having no money, <laughs> no bank account to the point where I couldn't even afford to get on a bus. And, you know, my parents worked incredibly hard. They worked long hours. And that gave me the opportunity to be this kind of free range kid where I would go off and get into scrapes and get into trouble. And, you know, that's part of the natural process of growing up. And I think a lot of kids are denied that. They're so, you know, protected. They're so smothered, merely out of concerns for their safety, fear mongering, stuff like that, but also you know, because there's this kind of denialism of that authentic bucolic upbringing, yes. which is which is where you learn all the lessons as early as possible in life about hardship and about confrontation and getting into fights and arguments and stuff like that. And that builds humans to be humans and to be able to withstand whatever the world throws at you. And kids kids don't tend to have that now. Well, it sounds- so I think that's why they're more, you know, whiny and hurty and all that kind of stuff it sounds like it was a sort of rite of passage for you and when you look to with yorkshire it does seem like the the borderlands culture does push down into yorkshire and for for the borderlanders and that northern culture authenticity is a really important part of it that personal truth right rather than propositional truth it's that you are honest to what you authentically feel about something do you feel that what was your transition like when you moved from the north to the south? Did you feel a distinct difference between uh, what people were like in that Westminster bubble that you perhaps entered, or even going into media? Did you? Did you? And did that help you? Do you think that authentic northerner quality in, in that oh, world? Oh yeah, I think. Stay? Yeah, I think definitely it has a very a very strong grounding influence being from that part of the world because if you get a bit uppity, if you get ideas yeah. above your station. If you get a bit too preeny and pretentious, then you get slapped down pretty quickly. Yeah. And you know, I don't that is that is atypical of the north. I suppose it's also atypical of certain other regions, but generally, as you said, as you move further south, people become a bit more a bit more pretentious and a bit more a bit less authentic, I would say. So yeah, I mean it definitely gave me a grounding. The the big difference of when I go back up north and it's mm rare that i get the opportunity to do so i mean i we were able with my girlfriend to go up and have a holiday in the peak district uh about five six months ago then i went up for a wedding a few months ago big difference is the people are still to this day even with how mass migration has changed some of these areas but the natives are still very authentic very disarming and very friendly the difference between friendliness in a place like the cotswolds which has a big London invasion going on right now. Oh, really? And 
the natives up in Sheffield, up in Yorkshire, in those kind of areas, the stark difference between just sheer friendliness and, you know, passing people. I, I reckon one of the one of the quintessential English things is when and in what area that you say hello to somebody as you pass them. Because, yeah. of course, as you get closer and closer to a town or a suburb, walking past someone in the street yeah. and saying hello gets increasingly weirder to the point where it would seem demented if you were doing it in the middle of a city. But then it would seem weird not to do it, not to say hello to someone. For example, if you were walking through the woods in a rural area and you were walking past someone on a path, if you didn't say hello, that would be seen as very odd. The closer you get to a city, it becomes deranged and demented even to look someone in the eyes and say hello. So, you know, that's one of the big differences. People up north do seem to be more grounded, definitely more down to earth. No matter, you know, their social station, the, the class that they either fall or elevate themselves into. It's, it's ironic that the closer we come together in these urban modernist cities, the more we actually get drift apart in terms of totally. speaking to each other. And uh, no, you, yeah. you, you, you make a lot of uh, scathing criticisms of modernism. Um, I think some of your most creative stuff is that those those modern modernism videos and and sort of critiquing critiquing cities and stuff. It does seem like there's a move at the moment um, in in the Englishman in towards people are looking towards tradition as it comes worse as people become more aware of that. And you, again, you moving to the Cotswolds back there. I don't know. Do do you feel that that's that's going on? I know that you you. Um, you recently posted that bold, bold explorer um, on your uh, on your. You posted his, and he he deals with a lot of these uh, English traditions, right? And it's unpolitical, but I don't know. Are you exploring yeah. that more these days? Are you looking into that? Because you said, I remember <clears throat> when you did an interview. I think maybe we were talking about. It, I can't remember, but um, t- living a more conventional life. Are you exploring that more now? Looking into those. Oh, definitely. I mean. The uh, the move the move to London was was um, you know London's an exciting place and a lot of people who move to London generally from the north are people who have something going on in their lives they they've got some kind of project going they're interesting people who are getting on with life and doing something interesting with their lives so all the interesting people and I'm talking about you know people in their twenties thirties do tend at some stage of their lives if they live in the UK to move to London. It's just a general thing. So that's where, you know, you will meet interesting people, and especially with politics. You know, there was a big political scene around London from about 2015 onwards, obviously 2016 through to about yeah. when the Institute of the lockdown. And it was it was primarily centered around Brexit. And it was centered around what Nigel Farage was doing latterly with the Brexit party in 2019. It was centered around even the election in 2019 and the whole fight for free speech. You know, you had the rise of UKIP who stood on a free speech podium in 2017. So there was a big buzz around London politically from 2016 onwards. And that's actually when I moved to London was in oh, right. early 2016. So, so you were in the North was, all the time before that? Uh, no, I lived in... Um, well, I was in I was in Sheffield until I was about thirty. Right. Then okay. I moved down to um, Warwick in the Midlands, and then I moved down to Surrey. So I kind of made my way down. But then by the age of, I think I was about thirty two, thirty three when I actually moved to London proper, Battersea, and you know it, it was a really exciting time. I enjoyed it. But as you said, Battersea is a bit different from Central London, of course, because I lived near the park, and it was more of of a kind of residential area, and it felt a bit more green. The last place I lived in London, which uh, I don't know why I did this. I guess I, I just wanted the full-on modernist hell experience <laughs> before I got out there. I decided to move to literally bang in the center of London in a giant <laughs> glass and steel tower block. Wow. Now I only <laughs> only lasted 10 months. Yeah. I was literally there for about 10 months and then I got the hell out of there and yeah. came to the Cotswolds. But it, it was exactly that. And this is what a lot of people don't realize. Of course, with mass migration, you have the ghettos of the poor people in yeah. these towns and cities across the country. But you also have it with rich people. And of course, rich people moving into cities like London also ghettoize. So, for example, 
in my little floor on this tower block, there were rich Chinese, there were rich <clears throat> Russians, there were rich Arabs, there were rich Americans in the apartment right next door, which I could literally, you know, it was on my doorstep, literally yeah. on my doorstep. Never spoke to them once in 10 months. My direct neighbors, who I would sometimes even see coming out the door, never spoke to them once, never spoke to any other neighbors on the same floor. The only people I spoke to were the people, you know, doing the building management. That was it. And that's when you're living cheek by jowl with these people. So even in the you know upper middle class people who can afford to live in these tower blocks in central London, um, it was it was the Tower of Babel, basically. Everyone <laughs> spoke to each other. And it was, you know, an example of how multiculturalism doesn't really work. You slam all these different yeah. cultures together. And whether they're rich or poor, they ghettoize and they've got in-group preference and they just hang out with their own, which is what happens when you have mass migration at such an accelerated, fast pace. You can never integrate people into the same culture. And it works on the on the bottom rung of the social ladder and on the upper rungs of the social ladder to the same degree, I'd say. So, no, I, I enjoyed living in London a lot, but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very exciting place, but it's also a place in which you're prone to burn the candle at both ends. <laughs> and that's not possible when yeah. you start careening towards the, towards the age of 40. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, especially with the work I do, it's pretty intense. I have to work pretty hard. So, you know, it yeah. was it was time to go. But, it, you know, it's like all big cities, it, it, can, it has a kind of dark energy that you really have yes. to ward off. Otherwise, yeah. it can start enveloping you. Yes. And, you know, that kind of environment can be exciting. But it's at the end of the day, it can also be very inhumane. And that's by the end of it, especially living in a tower block. Uh, that's what it felt like. And so that was the right point to return to tradition and yeah. go back to the to the bucolic countryside village existence which of what which is what I've been doing since the start of the year and you know I've never been happier well that's interesting right there's that I, I mentioned a bit of this verse before on when I was on your uh, podcast but um there's this Kipling verse which is that I am the land of their fathers and me the virtue stays I will bring back my children after certain days under their feet in the grass as my clinging magic runs they shall return as strangers they shall remain as sons over their head in the branches of their new-bought ancient trees, I weave an incantation and draw them to my knees. Scent of smoke in the evening, smell of rain in the night, uh, uh, order their souls aright, till I make plain the meaning of all my thousand years, till I fill their hearts with knowledge and I fill their eyes with tears. That ordering their souls aright, what did it feel like when you first entered the Cotswolds, right? So you're going back, you bought a place, are you re-entering village life like what are your habits now do you go for a jog in it have you is it re has it do you feel it's like you've reordered you well i mean going back the, the the very first time i encountered the cotswolds was actually just visiting the area for the first time and uh there's a there's a village uh, some people would call it town it's probably a village called broadway and it's it's literally one of the most beautiful villages that you could ever walk through not too touristy at the time. It's a little more touristy now, but not so bad. And it was just like obviously the the yellow hued slime limestone stone houses, the wisteria hanging down. Uh, there was a bloke painting his door, whistling tunes, and it was just absolutely idyllic. And I thought, oh my god, this is heaven on earth. I have to I have to come back here. That was like ten years ago when I still lived in Sheffield and just came down for a trip. So always thought that I'd end up back in this area in terms of routine yeah you recenter yourself um you reorientate yourself around what's important and you know it it vastly improves your focus your peace of mind that's the that's the key the peace of mind that rushes through when you live in an environment which is in accordance with how humans are supposed to live not in glass and steel anthills piled on top of each other that's for insects we're humans we need space we need fresh air we need peace of mind and the routines improved greatly as well i mean by the end of uh people can go and watch my youtube videos if you if you look at the youtube videos from around january february i'm getting a bit chubby i'm getting a bit fat it's <laughs> not a healthy existence because yeah. you live in central london the, the nearest park is like a 30-minute runaway. You can't yeah. even get to the nearest park. 
it's not an environment for personal exercise. So I was getting a bit chubby, getting a bit unhealthy. Soon as I moved here again, I got out into the countryside, lots of great places to go running, like to run in the morning as early as possible. And yes, it's, it just, uh, it, it reorientates you and recenters you and, you know, that rush of endorphins is the biggest natural high you could ever have after, you know, doing a five mile jog or whatever it is in the countryside, breathing in that air. And, it, you know, even I think in winter, it's even better because the air is so yeah. bracing. It really invigorates you, doesn't it? So, you yeah, feel it on your I mean, skin. that's that's, like... that's the kind of lifestyle I've got got back into. I've, you know, lost a bit of weight over the past six months or so. Feel feel a damn sight better. The air is cleaner. The people are friendlier than the ones in London, not as friendly as people up north. But yeah, yeah. no, it's been it's been a revelation and best decision I ever made, basically, which is why I tell people. And I eventually took my own advice after being yeah. there for yeah. five years. Get out of big cities, and that's what I did. It's a big movement. I think people are talking about this. There's a, there's people a YouTuber called um, the Woodsman, where he's mm. there's actually cheap land that you can buy. And there's an old English law where if it's up for four years, they can't. The, you don't need um, planning to do it. So he bought land in the middle of the forest, cheaper, where people couldn't see and built the cabin. And apparently in the foresting laws, if you're looking after the foresting, you can keep the land. And so it's four acres. And it's, I think it was only 200 or 100,000 pounds. And he built a thing out there himself. So there is a movement of people that are trying to, with the WEF, uh, mm. what, what they're going to do to the food supply. I'm sure you're probably thinking about that for later in your life as well, is what they're going to do with food. You, you need to be prepared for that. And to, uh, I know, finding a way to, to have four acres perhaps be more, more self-sustained um, out there. So there are people in this space, in the, the traditional space, looking to that to escape the plans that people have for it. Obviously, you fight it. Like you, part, a big part of yours is is fighting this. Um, this yeah. has your mission changed from that original? I mean, you started in this in two thousand five. God, when you first were in Alex Jones's documentary, bloody hell, dude! That's a long <laughs> it started time ago. before that. Oh, really? No, it was actually it was actually before that. You could, I mean, you think all this stuff's interesting. We've had this conversation. You think all this stuff's interesting. I guess it's interesting to some people. I think it's a bit boring. But, I mean, you know, from a very early age, I was I was a bit of a tearaway. I was a bit rebellious. Um, you know, I was kicked out of school when I was 13, getting into fights and smoking weed, listening to punk music and grunge music. I was a little grunge kid with all greasy hair and all that stuff when I was about 13. So I was always a bit... Sounds a bit cringe, but you know, quintessential rebel. Yeah, punk. and I got McKinnis, yeah, basically McKinnis. a punk, basically a punk. Twenty five years after punk ended, but more of like a grunge kid. So I was into all the music scene and all that kind of stuff, and it led to the politics. I was actually obsessed with UFOs and alien abductions <laughs> when I was about eleven. Yeah, right. I was absolutely transfixed with that subject. I collected all the books. I used to go to Waterstones in, Sheff in Sheffield and sit in Waterstones for three hours a day reading books about UFO abductions and aliens and stuff like that. So I was always into like kind of out there subjects from the beginning. And obviously, if you get into that kind of stuff, it leads to political conspiracies. So I got into a whole new world order, global government thing, which, of course, is now the Great Reset. It never went away. It's it's still very much a work in progress. And yeah, I mean, that's how I got into it from quite an early age. You know, I would I would skip school and go into the woods and sit on a big rock and read books all day about this kind of stuff. And uh, it was actually back in, I think it was 2000, I started reading David Icke's books. <laughs> I consumed all his books. Yeah. And at one stage, probably did believe that shapeshifting reptoids ruled the world. Probably don't believe that now, but it was a very, very prominent theory. Symbolically, that's, yeah. that's true in the sense that they are shapeshifters well, in their nature. It's something, right. something demonic's going on, that's for sure. But um, yeah, the thing is about the year 2000, there was this Channel 4 hit piece against Alex Jones called The Secret Rulers of the World. And it was about how... John Ronson followed him into Bohemian Grove, and it was about how Alex Jones infiltrated Bohemian Grove, this annual confab of global elitists where they all get together in the woods in California and do weird rituals and stuff like that. And 
it was a straight up hit piece on Channel 4 trying to make out that Alex Jones was insane, that this was all bullshit. when in fact, it wasn't. It was actually happening. And so the hit piece against Jones actually made me go and look him up on the Internet and find out about what he was doing with InfoWars and all that kind of stuff. So basically, it was it was 2001 when I started doing what I do. And some people may remember, I had a website called, and bear in mind that in 2001, domain names were pretty freely available. You could basically have your pick and, and choice of some very good domain names. I chose the domain name propagandamatrix.com. <laughs> I could have literally had any. I probably could have had news.com at that point almost. But, uh, yeah, so I actually started my own website doing, trying to do something similar to what Alex Jones was doing as far back as 2001. Wow, it was before 9-11. I was literally about wow. 17. It was before 9-11. And, uh, yeah, that's how it started. And basically, I think the Iraq war was the big flashpoint where it really kicked into high gear because I was really, you know, that was... I remember seeing the bombs falling on Baghdad on the television, the whole shock and awe thing. And that was the first time where something external outside of my own vision or immediate mm. environment had made me physically sick, seeing those yeah. bombs drop during that invasion. So I began to I began to do massive coverage on all the lies behind the Iraq war on this website. And it, it really got big at the time. I think it was like the, the second biggest alternative media website mm behind Alex Jones really? back in the early 2000s. And a lot of people probably won't remember that that was me that did that. And, yeah, that's 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 basically how it started. I mean, you know, I remember being on AOL chat rooms when I was about 16 talking to people about this and uh, building up email lists on AOL of about 30 people. So, you know, come quite a long way from 30 people on an AOL email list to, you know... Two million subs and all that stuff. It's such an early age, too. It's kind of strange. I think, again, there's that northern thing in it again with that truth. Yeah. It's like, okay, the media is pushing this. I f see this other authentic truth somewhere else. And you're building bloody email lists at that age. That's crazy <laughs> to me. It's insane. I mean, I remember being on the web at that point. I mean, I'm not as old as you, but <laughs> using those sort of old programs like IRC and stuff and AOL yeah. online, but... Yeah, that, that early age, that's insane. Like, yeah, yeah, we've got this movement going and building these email lists and stuff. God, I remember I remember um, mm. when I was in university and wasn't that interested in it because I was doing history and basically all the professors were like, Stalin was great. He did fantastic things. So I would, yeah. I would this is probably like early 2001, mid-2001. I would I would skip class at university so I could get the bus and go home and host an online radio show via dial-up. Yeah, dial-up, yeah. <laughs> to literally three listeners. Yeah. It was the first web hosting platform, I think, in existence. There were probably like one or two at the time. It's called Alternacast. And it was the only listeners were the other people hosting the shows. So you would literally have like three listeners. And I'd be on there talking about New World Order and conspiracies and 9-11 to like three listeners and, you know, sending it out to my AOL email list. Uh, and that so was literally, at, you know, 21, 21 years ago now. And at the same time, you've kind of, I mean, I've met, I've met some of your mates and they seem like really bang about dudes, right? And that's probably key because I met a lot of people in LA. I know East celebrity types. And I think this, this thing with Americans sometimes, not all Americans, but... This thing is that oh, they, they sort of make it and then they go, oh, I've got now these aristocrats. I don't need my old friends. It seems like that's yeah. kind of grounded you. There's that English nature of, I think uh, McInnes realizes this because he was born in England as well, is that mm. it's a practice going to the pub, right? It's throwing barbs at each other is, an, is the Englishman's way. And because people call it tall poppy syndrome, but I think it's actually mischaracterized. Yeah. And it's this way of keeping the ego from inflating. Because you see, again, in America, a lot of East Leb type, they go insane. James Corden, all these people, they go mental and they sort of think they've entered this aristocracy. Is that important to you, having grounded friends that do tear down your ego? Because, I mean, God, I, I have comments on my own channel. Obviously, it's very you know, small compared to yours, but you need to keep it under control. You need some sort of structure, some practice to make sure that you don't, 
you know, it, you're not, you don't inflate because you've got millions of people commenting on your video saying how great it all is. So is that important to you, having that group of sort of Navy SEAL regular dudes? Totally. Fraternal, yeah. Fraternity, mean, yeah. I mean, to, to a certain degree, you, do, you don't want to be reading you know, all this in, in, effusive praise about yourself because it's just, it's it comes across a bit false and it's, you know, it's it's quite... It's quite intense in a way. You don't want to think that about yourself. That there are there are a lot of people who think that you know you're this you're this big personality or whatever. I just see it as you know this is what I've always done since I was a teenager. Yeah. I'm pretty good at it. I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> so I just, this is what I do. Yeah. I mean, they uh, this this Daily Beast journalist who I referenced earlier. He went back to where I grew up. I don't know why, because I don't. I didn't understand why anyone would find it interesting. But they were they were kind of, they were trying to say, oh, he's the new Alex Jones at the time or whatever. Even though I'm nothing like Alex Jones, obviously, nothing bad against him. But so they went back to my old school, my old area where I grew up, and they talked to some of my classmates and some of the teachers, and they all said. Yeah, he always had a lot to say for himself. He always argued with the teachers in class. You know, not in an aggressive way, but he always had something to say. He always had, had some back and forth patter. I don't really remember that, to be honest with you. But if they yeah. all say it, it must have happened to some extent. Mm. So I guess that was just the genesis of it. I always liked a bit of an argument, a bit of a Barney with people. Yeah. You know, and that's that's how it started. But yeah, in terms of staying grounded, it's just where you're from. And it's it's your parents, obviously, as well. You know, my dad uh worked in a tool factory his entire life some say the biggest tool he made was me <laughs> we had yeah. to get home yeah. uh and he would you know i i remember waking up every morning at 6 a.m because his alarm would go off in the next bedroom and it'd be him getting up to work at 6 a.m when it was still dark outside and freezing cold in sheffield and going to some grimy factory in the center of sheffield to work 12 hour days to you know provide provide an upbringing for me and my brother so it's that kind of work ethic and that's also generally a northern thing that kind of hardship that you know facing adversity not complaining too much and working hard so i got i got a very strong work ethic from my parents both of whom worked very hard to elevate themselves from being relatively poor and not having much money to being like kind of lower middle class and giving us a greater opportunity me and my brother so i always you know, I always resonated with that kind of hard work ethic. So a lot of it is just, you know, I just see it as this. This is my role in life. Yeah. This is what I was meant to do. I, I'm reasonably good at it. I'm not good at anything else. This, so this is what I get up and do every single day. I don't really think about it in too much of a philosophical, deep, meaningful sense. But, you know, I, I do think I was I was always going to end up doing something like this. And it just happened to be what it is now. You don't do what you do for money, obviously. You're driven by something. Something's impelling you from within to do what you're doing. What gives you vitality? What gets you to to make the effort to put out all the content that you're doing? I mean, it's not even just about you. This is about anyone, though. It's not about content makers. It's just I, often on this, on this channel, I'm looking for those sort of things that give people vitality. I don't know what, what pushes you to keep going with what you're doing, especially because you get attacked a lot as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um... From a from a very early stage, it, it was it was a keen sense of injustice about how certain narratives weren't being adequately covered, weren't being adequately voiced, and how many people were being denied of a voice and just didn't have a platform. I mean, something as simple as like the YouTube comment section on my videos, for a lot of people, that is that is their bread and butter. That's their lifeline. That's where they get to have their say. That's their platform. So obviously YouTube's the platform, but I'm kind of providing the the microphone for them to express themselves and their frustration. So that's probably what drives me is, is giving a voice to the voiceless, to people who are condemned, people who are called fringe, people who are called backward or whatever, and just being the example to them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's that's all you can be is is try and be an example to other people try and live as authentically as possible. Sometimes you stumble, sometimes you don't quite live up to your own expectations, but that's all you can do. And to try and point out to people that, 
if you live your life in this way as closely as possible, you'll be a happier person. You'll be a more pleasant person to be around. You'll improve your immediate environment. You'll improve the environment, the lives of people you love. And eventually, if everyone embraces that principle, you'll improve your village, your community, you'll improve the country. I've tried to direct it, direct it back towards the content of the videos, yeah. the message, specifically in terms of, you know, with the, the architecture videos, trying to reevaluate what beauty is, trying to understand yeah. what beauty is, yes. trying to live more authentically uh, and not have it be about online celebrity Yes. You know, drama and all that kind of stuff and getting into arguments and fights with leftists on Twitter. And... <laughs> yeah, You even said ages ago when we were talking um, that you didn't even like the attention of it, you know, and there's some other people that do. I think they sort of get fueled by the narcissism of that. So the, the, yeah. I, the idea of it being about the message, it's true. It's not about that. It's about especially you can see I, and that's probably even been the case for you because you probably began as a sort of libertarian but it's probably moving towards mm. this it's probably i can see there's an arc in what you're doing there's an arc in the kind of content you're making that you move more to you begin in full-on just hard news politics and it moves towards the cultural stuff beauty yeah. criticizing modernism um and it seems like you know i think that's I, my message is, is get is getting local right don't become some mm. e-celebs orbiter and only participate in online communities if you can actually be heard in some way, you know, yeah. if you can be be a part of it, because that's a problem. Having all this stuff centralized in your room is having it centralized in your house. It's never it was never supposed to be that way. We were supposed to be telling stories by the campfire. Right. And I think that in, that ideal is in there, that English ideal of returning to that, you know. I mean, why did you take a holiday to the Peak District? The, the Peak District, you probably the, the North is probably in there. Perhaps you will one day end up going back there. I mean, what was your fear, your sense of the the attunement then when you went up there for the holiday? Not to get philosophical about well, it. Well, I, I was turning forty, so I thought <laughs> I'll I'll go back to my roots and I'll you know I'll 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 because the Peak District, you know, Sheffield borders the Peak District basically. So it was where I would go as a kid with my with my parents, and I'd go hiking. You know, I mean, that's what that's one of the the English rituals that I've always been, you know, very keen on is countryside hiking. I think you know that's where you connect with the landscape, with the soil, up on a peat bog on Kinder Scout in the Peak District. That's where you find true peace of mind, and that's where I feel like truly, you know, reconnected and and English, exploring all these little villages and hamlets that you get around the Cotswolds, going into all the you know, churches, trying to figure out how old the churches are and really just, you know, exploring true England, trying to get beyond the tourist traps and really going into those those inner areas where, you know, most people don't tread, reconnecting with the landscape. That's the whole idea of it. And yeah, I'd say I'd, I'd do that. I'd say as I get older and as I become more ingrained in this kind of village community life, I can see myself definitely, you know, for example, uh, there's someone who lives nearby who I'm going to go shooting with in, you know, next year, probably early next year. So I'm going to try and get into that reconnecting with that kind of stuff. You know, I used to go, obviously one of the, one of the memories of growing up as a kid in, in Northern Sheffield was Sunday school and all that kind of environment. I really liked that. So I'm going to try and get back into that. So yeah, oh. it's the kind of stuff you can't do in London because it's all, you know, you go to the cinema, you go boozing, you do this or that. There's there's really no yeah. bucolic pursuits that you can really connect with in that kind of urban environment. Like I've already said in the, the conversation, there's a lot of people who are re-engaging with religion. I mean, you mentioned Sunday school then. Um, mm. I spent, even the Orthodox Church, uh, there's the British Orthodox Church, which is growing a lot at the moment. Um, and people are re-engaging with that because, of course, we know the Church of England has been just sort of overrun with liberals and they don't even are they even believers anymore? I don't know. Um, but yeah, and, and because it doesn't have a pope, right? So people are people and they, they yeah. include the king in their ceremonies. People are re-engaging with that. I don't know. Are you re-engaging with religion? It's a personal question. I, you don't really have to answer. I would, I would say to. so. Yeah, I would say I'm I was actually, you know, I was quite religious when I was, I would say, early teens, early 20s. I was, you know, I was I wasn't religiously church going, but I was I was very into the message of Jesus. And I was read a lot of books about Jesus, watched lots of documentaries about Jesus and stuff like that. So I was, I was really, 
for most 18 year olds, I was quite religious and I do see myself, you know, moving back to that. And, you know, it's a perfect place to do it. So, yeah, I think there is there's going to be a big movement back towards that. That's the yeah. way it's heading, especially amongst Generation mm. Z becoming more conservative in some senses. Um, the problem is with the, obviously the leadership of the church. I mean, for example, we get the local village, you know, magazine through the door, and the the priest is talking about because I live in a in an area which in summer can get a, a bit touristy. So you've got like Chinese Arabs coming in occasionally. Oh, right. And in this village magazine, he this priest writes, I walked down the street and I heard five different languages being spoken and it just brought to the fore how great multiculturalism is oh, to me. God. And so that, and when you've got those kind of places. people leading the church, yeah. that's that's going to be a problem, isn't it? Because yeah. they don't get it. Uh, so... I think that's one of the biggest problems with the church is the leadership. But yeah, I do see. Generally, I see, I see a, a, a backlash against against the vulgar, against the profane, against the over sexualization of society. I think they've really pushed it too far with this whole, you know, alphabet people movement, which is a obviously, as we know, a top down imposed movement. It's not a grassroots thing anymore, and I think. Generally speaking, there's going to be and there is a, a big pushback against that from young people who are looking at why they're depressed, why they're being bombarded with antidepressants, why they're feeling down, why they don't feel they're authentically connected to their lives, to their family. And I think slowly but surely there is gradually going to be a big backlash and that's going to start to flip the other way. And this kind of this religion of degeneracy which has really, you know, I'd say pervaded society since the late, probably the late 90s, maybe even earlier. I think it's starting to wash away. And I think the next generation, if you listen to what, I mean, uh, Toby Young, for example, he said he went and did a talk to a group of uh, sixth form girls a, a couple of weeks ago. And he's being brought in to teach them that it's okay to disagree with people and have <laughs> arguments with them. Yeah. And it's okay to hold conservative beliefs. So I think yeah. kids want to rebel, you know, so if, mm. if everything that's imposed from the establishment is degeneracy, is yes. this uh, promiscuousness, is this LGBT culture, is this um, mindless smartphone addicted culture, I think, uh, once they begin to realize more that that is not a form of rebellion that is being imposed on them by very malign influences, then gradually and authentically they're gonna they're gonna rebel against that. And you know, I always had a big, despite the fact that a lot of my audience is is also kind of like boomer Americans. I've always had this kind of very young demographic as well. Quite yeah, a big yeah. chunk of my audience, if you look on the you know, the stats on YouTube, quite a big chunk of it is basically teenagers. And I think mm. when everything's so sterile, when everything's so censored, mm. I mean, you, you saw what happened with Andrew Tate, right? Who's the biggest, what's the biggest thing on TikTok, the app for teenagers? It's Andrew Tate because he's edgy, because he's offensive, because he's authentic in what he says, whether you agree with it or yeah, not. Yeah. So he's proof positive that there's this yeah giant appetite for something different something genuinely edgy and i think a lot of young people are, are starting to reconnect with that so i think it's really positive and i think underneath too this drive this this depression is actually all it's the authentic english being that is imitated father to son mother to daughter it's been disconnected from its its true place of where it belongs and that's not just mm. a trivial thing it's not if i don't know if you're a materialist or not but it's literally that's where we came from. It's the sort of the land itself, originally. It's in our being. It comes into your being. It's brought into your being. And so you're living in these hell holes on antidepressant. That's an authentic response to something, to be depressed. That's your being calling, saying something's wrong. Get out. Return to where you belong. You know? And I, I think also there's a, there's a reason why when you made a long time ago, you actually had a video about this, is that they were already attacking English identity back in 2008 or 2005 you had a video about st george's day that you mm. they were banning flags and so the white pill we can take from that a bit is why there's a, there's a reason why they go after it is there's something innate in it that's ultra powerful that they want to keep under wraps or else why attack it so much 
it would have to be a danger to them, right? Is that that means there's this brewing potential underneath that people? Well, to, to, yeah, go. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's a unifying innate natural resource, mm. and that's why they want everyone atomized. That's why they want people living in in anthill steel and glass towers. That's why they want people estranged from their family mm. uh, because you know they want them atomized. They want them dependent on the state. They want them dependent on this regime narrative where you have to hold these certain beliefs, otherwise your friends are going to disavow you, you're going to lose your job, you know, you're going to lose your bank, your Twitter account or whatever. Uh, they want people unified in their regime messaging, and that's why they need to destroy the authentic alternative narrative, which is exactly what you said, family, mm. tradition, country, culture, that's why they want to undermine it, subvert it, sabotage it, because it creates a generation of nowhere people who yeah. can then be easily manipulated, gelded, locked down both mentally and physically and torn away from their true innate mm. destiny in life. And mm. not just in a philosophical sense, a, a pretentious mm. sense, but in a very real yes. happiness sense. I mean, you're not happy going on like fucking you porn and staring at your phone for three hours in the morning, dragging yeah. yourself downstairs, eating sugar filled cereal, watching yeah. television, and then basically sitting on your ass all day and doing nothing. And then wondering why you're depressed. You're not supposed to live like that. That's yeah. a pathetic Weasley existence, but that's the existence that's being pushed on them by the regime, by the establishment and family tradition, country, you know, uh, all those bucolic pursuits that we've discussed, mm. you know, hiking, shooting, name them, is is what takes you away from that, is what gets you out in the real world, is what gets yes. you reconnected with the real world, with nature itself. And that's what makes you happy. Yes. You're never going to be made happy by pursuing money, by pursuing drugs, by pursuing women, by pursuing fame or whatever. The only thing that's ever going to make you happy is family, tradition, mm. country, reconnecting with nature. You know, it's no secret. It's been that way for the entirety of yeah. human history. And nothing, nothing much has changed, has it? Yes, and this it's this fake progress. It's this fake modernistic, oh, we have to move on from that. But that's how you find your destiny. You mentioned destiny. That's real in the sense that we're supposed to be inside a teleology, inside it towards an end, towards a inside. A, that's what being part of the church is. It's being part of a grand narrative. And I would say if these things are true, of course, they are true, but also in terms of the country and the nation. Is that you can play a role in that destiny. I think everyone does have a destiny. You have to work hard to discover what that is. You had a destiny into what it was. It's not about being a big celebrity or something, though. It's not about that. It could be a gardener. It could be a brewer of ales, an English ales, though, right? And that's, there's honor in that. There's great honor. These, these pursuits used to have, people ha took honor in them, these, these rural, rural trades and such, these ways of doing things in the tradition. They were rewarding in their way. It only became when you made people a part of a cog in a machine, forcing even working class chaps up north, their jobs had an honor to them, right? But now they're forced to work at, uh, at, uh, at uh, Tesco's and put as a machine to scan things, right? So you can mm. find that destiny. I think everyone authentically has it. And if they can re-engage with tradition to find that destiny. So it's not trivial, though. It's not just philosophical. I think everyone does have that. Even Tolkien talks about this in his, you know, in his book. It's no small thing to celebrate a simple life. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but there's a place for people, you know, to find that that destiny. I think a big part of that too is men's clubs, right? Mm. People who stop doing this men's clubs. I know, I know that you've posted. I don't know if you're a member of any men's clubs. I know you've posted. You've been at private clubs or not? Is that a part of your life at all? Uh, it was it was when I was in London, yeah, not yeah. so much here, but obviously because you know over my friends, most of them are still in London, but yeah, it was a part of it, definitely that that kind of male environment, yeah, I mean obviously the the direction of of regime messaging now is that any any kind of uh, male bonding is somewhat suspect and should be restricted to the man cave yeah. or to some underground dingy place where. You're not even supposed to hang out with other men. You're supposed to hang out on your own in the man cave and do whatever down there. Mm. Whereas, you know, male bonding and fraternity should be celebrated and, and women should have the same spaces that's for the right. same purpose. So, again, that's again, it's all about atomization, isn't it? It's mm. all about creating division, 
creating this kind of gender wars, race wars or whatever to get people at everyone's throats and and uh, attacking fraternity, attacking brotherhood, attacking everything that, you know, they have this whole narrative about mental health and, oh, we don't talk about mental health enough. There's a stigma around mental health. Well, you talk about it all the time and you're encouraging people to become depressed because you're telling them that, you know, there's there's no real reason that we can grasp as to why they're depressed. But as long as they talk about it, then it, it's going to get better. No, you need to do more than talk about it with some yeah. therapist or whatever. Yes. You need to change the functioning of your life. You need yes. to change your basic routines. Yes. You need to not be a dysfunctional person every time you get up in the morning and defer to instant gratification and dysfunctional habits. And you need to pursue something that's that's fulfilling, that's creative, if you can. You know, even my dad working in a factory in, in the 70s and the 80s, making things. He was making things. He was making important objects that were crucial to the city, the steel city of Sheffield. So again, there was something authentic in that. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be some highfalutin thing. Like that's right. Making movies like you do, Scott, or whatever. It can be. It doesn't have to be. So... Yeah, I mean that's again it's there are real solutions to depression simply talking about it and saying oh I'm a bit upset let's 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 remove the stigma surrounding mental health. I don't think there is a stigma around it because they talk about it all the time and yeah. they never offer any solutions yeah. particularly to young men. They just bombard yes. them with degenerate crap that yes. continually worsens that state that they're in. There's, there are no real authentic solutions offered because if they did that, you know, society would change for the better. And these people who who really amass power within the institutions through making men degenerate, um, you know, getting them hooked on porn, getting them hooked on gambling or booze or drugs or whatever, they the interest for them is for that system to continue. And yeah. that's why they're never going to offer any real solutions and they don't to depression. Sorry. Yeah, they endlessly talk about it in in the establishment culture. And they don't want participation. That, I think that's probably core. What you're saying, you've uncovered something there. Is that it's endlessly talking about it? It's the victim. It's, 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 oh, there's something wrong. That's, that's no, it, yeah. they don't want you out there actually doing because that's what men, the men and groups of men have been a revolutionary force since the dawn of time, and they don't want that, do they? It's good for culture. We're spoke, that's what heroism is. They're trying to kill that because they want the managerial gynocentric culture and structure to rule things, the middle managers. But it's, it's these chads and participation in life that actually saves the world from that, right? And they, they want it dead. Yeah. Well, precisely. I mean, you know, that's, that's still the upbringing of the aristocracy, the, the upper class in the mm. United Kingdom. The the and I'm not saying it's a bad if you're born into wealth or aristocracy, it's not your fault. That's what you're born into. But in in many cases, the, the parents and, you know, I've got a few rich friends who were born into <laughs> wealth and aristocracy in London. Uh, and obviously they're exposed to that kind of participation culture from a very early age by yeah. their parents and by the universities they're enrolled in. Now, you could call that privilege, but those are the men who tend to enter into society being upstanding individuals some of them obviously go the other way and become malevolent and evil but generally speaking those are the leaders in our society because from an early age they're exposed to that participation culture they get out they go on the hunt they do the shoot yeah. they do the you know the public speaking they mm. get engaged in their local communities because yeah. that's that's the that's how they climb up the social ladder and that's how they they kind of maintain their level on that. So, you know, whereas the poor kids, they're just shunted to one side uh, and told you're never going to be anything. Here's some porn. Here's TikTok. Here's some fast food. You're never going to amount to anything. Maybe you'll get a job in Tesco stacking shelves. And yeah, I mean, that's that's the narrative that a lot of young people have. And their masculinity is continually denigrated. They're told that they can't, uh, I mean... They've passed a law or they're about to pass a law in the UK, which says staring intently at a woman can get you put in prison for four years. Whoa. And Whoa. we have these poster campaigns everywhere on public transport saying don't harass women. Now, creepy perverts who are going to harass women 
aren't going to be put off by a silly little poster on a on a bus saying don't harass women. The only thing that's going to do is, and this is what happened with the whole Me Too movement, which ended up in women who had bad dates saying that they've been sexually harassed because they had a bad date with a man. Again, it's this process of gelding, this process of eviscerating confidence and and a true expression of masculinity, which is not creepy or perverted. It's just it's just how men behave and it's how men attract mates, how they, yeah. you know, how they couple. And that's being denigrated. That's being eviscerated. And it's creating this generation of simps, this generation of men hooked on OnlyFans, hooked on porn. Their confidence is ruined, destroyed. And so throughout the rest of their entire lives, they don't have the tools to even engage with women on a genuine, authentic level and, and build relationships. And that's that's obviously another attack vector that I've tried to expose in the work yeah. that I do and to try to give young men confidence and say, you know, don't be ashamed to express your masculinity, to be a man. Yes, to, to live it, to... I think that's where that participation with other other chads, groups of chads, you don't have to be the leader, the alpha of every group. Yeah, the monarchy. I don't know how you felt about the funeral. Um, I talk about on my channel is that I agree with all your criticisms of Charles. I think all these things, he's a perennialist. He should be under Christ. He shouldn't be dealing with any of these other religions. They should be thrown out. He should be all this stuff, 100% agree. But what I describe is this overarching hyper-agency, which is the true king. And I think this is a message we've got to get across. That's what the royal we means. The royal we is the thing that he's supposed to live up to. It's the over king is what I call it, right? So all these royals, we look at them. Yes, we should criticize them when they're not living up to this. But that doesn't mean you, this over king, this is, is in every Englishman himself as well, right? This distributed cognition, this hyper agency, which you saw active. In the funeral, you saw it active as a force, right? When you had those those chads, I don't know if you saw those chads that lifted the coffin, the the Grenadier yeah. Guards that came back from from Iraq, and they linked mm. arms together and lifted the coffin, and that's what it is. That's the true king. It's, it's a, a group of Englishmen with their arms linked together as one being. That's the overking, right? So I don't know. What was a general feeling in the funeral? Did you sense any any? I don't know if you watched the coverage of it or or. or I watched it without commentary, and I, it's something open to me about this that was authentic. There's something underneath there. No, it, 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 it definitely was savaged by the nowhere people, and that tells you that, that there is so much unifying authentic symbolism within any royal event, and specifically a funeral, that it frightens the life out of them because obviously, mm. generally speaking, the royal family has been apolitical for a period of, decades now in the united kingdom obviously charles has his say on global warming and architecture which i actually agree with him on yeah, but yeah. generally speaking there's there's no conflict of interest when it comes to the execution of whatever power the royal family as an institution expresses so i think yes definitely people do connect with that across all classes mm. of the societal sector because it is a it is a deeply ingrained unifying experience and it's, you know, it's like what people say about the presidency. I, I can respect the office without respecting mm. the president in the office. So, you know, I do respect the institution. I think it's it's overwhelmingly been a good thing, a unifying force for this country. Uh, and I think it is being subverted and savaged on a level which began after the death of Princess Diana, mm. because then we had this sudden change in in British culture where we went from reserved, stoic, stiff upper lip, and that's how we dealt with tragedy. We were strong, we faced adversity, to overly publicly emoting in a display of mm. rampant emotional incontinence. And I think that's what the death of Diana created. And then this whole narrative about how the, the royal family isn't being emotional, emotional enough, they're not you know, flying the flags at half-mast, and that has carried on now to the whole Harry and Meghan thing, which is, uh, you know, to see what happened to Harry from the person he once was 10, 15 years ago to what to the shell of a man he is now with what that woman has done to him. And I think they are the attack vector through which these regime nowhere people forces are trying to subvert and undermine what is the last, I would say, the last bastion of true authentic Britishness, one of them at least, 
which is the royal family. And I think there's a, a you don't have to respect all the opinions of King Charles. You don't have to defend whatever Prince Andrew did to still respect the institution itself and what it's done for this country, and particularly the Queen. And, you know, obviously the, the, the attacks against the Queen in the aftermath, particularly from leftist American YouTubers, were absolutely vile. And it just showed you how terrified they are by that kind of ingrained British traditional institution that, that does across all classes. And that is a, a absolutely stunning achievement for it to connect so deeply across the entire class structure in an authentic, genuine way. They're very afraid of that. And that's why they're constantly trying to subvert it and drag it down. And the latest incarnation of that is obviously Harry and Meghan. Mm. And a nation is an overarching personality. Right. So to have a head figure for it to be projected on, really, it comes from us. It comes from us. The ideal comes from us and it's thrown forward on that person. Right. So, again, that's the king. I really want to get I try to get this across. The king isn't actually Charles. He's not the king. The crown is the king as a spirit. It's hard for materialists to get that. But the king is in you and the ideal. Right. And it's projected and thrown. That's what the crown series gets wrong. They're not the ideal. They're supposed to live up to it. And it's the sacred symbols that reveal it, right? But, yeah, I mean, they also, one last thing is that they they also, I find, they try to use it, the media, and they name fake English values and they plaster them across the real ones, right? It's the emotional response for one of them. They call it stoicism, but really it's bleak heroic necessity. It's Anglo-Saxon. It's not Roman. It's Anglo-Saxon in the sense it's that uh, Dunkirk spirit, right? You know that? You see that in the war. It's this towards Ragnarok in the sense of in their cosmology, obviously under Christ, but in their cosmology, they knew ultimate death was coming and the final thing was going to be a war was the end of the universe. Death was, so it was quite natural to them for these things to happen. So they endured it. So when you see someone like Charles, he endured it well, but he's still slightly emotional and such, right? But the Viking, in our past, we're gregarious people, but they cover it with, I find all the time, tolerance that's fake it's a fake value we're welcoming we're not tolerant you tell us that we're tolerant because you won't oh just tolerate this just tolerate that's fake it's just made up by the media right it needs to be exposed and sort of articulated what the true impelling moral values are not as a fake proposition like tolerance yeah but is that it's it's not tolerance though is it it's aggressive promotion yeah it's not tolerating something when you have doctors injecting kids with hormone-bending drugs. That's mm. active, dangerous, deadly promotion of clearly unhealthy lifestyles that make people depressed. Yes. Of course, the trans suicide rates are the same or even worse after they have the op. So, yeah, yeah. and again, it's, it's, it, it's kind of this, uh, this appeal to overly emoting for emoting's sake, as if yes. just crying about something and claiming you're a victim is any road to a solution. It's, uh, again, it's about stoicism in the sense of refraining from emotional incontinence. Mm. Life is struggle. Shit is going to be thrown at you every single day. How you deal with that is not rolling over in a ball and wallowing Mm. in your own self-pity. That is quintessential Englishness, is to do the exact opposite, to be strong in the face of adversity. Stiff upper lip isn't just a cliché. It's a way of life and Mm. it's a necessity just to deal with all the bullshit that's going to come your way. And the fact that they're trying to weaken and dilute that Mm. truly English characteristic is one of the big attack vectors that we see. And and they've tried to do it via the royal family specifically recently when it is something that we all need to hold to fast Mm. as, you know, something that's truly intrinsically English. And it's not, just as a concluding statement, it's not, it's not like there's no emotion. You want some emotion, but it's authentic emotion because th- their emotions yeah. are like the communists in North Korea. You know, when they all go, oh, <laughs> the leaders died. That's really, it's a version of that. Authentic English emotions there. It's, it's all felt underneath. It's not this, uh, what's in the cinema where it's just, there's just wooden. No, you saw Charles and, you know, uh, t- you know he was tearing up or whatever, but it's not blubbering. It's not yeah. performative. It's not performative. It's authentically, but it's, it's a bleak, it's a heroic necessity. It's an understanding of the bleakness of life. It's actually what life is supposed to be. Yeah, that's... I mean, read uh, Theodore Dalrymple's book, Grief, on that. And, you know, he explains how grief has been twisted where 
you know, three, four, five decades ago to grieve was a very private affair. Now mm. it's the most publicly overly emotive thing, you know, open top parades, hundreds of thousands of flowers placed. And it's it's this it's this public spectacle. And, you know, you can also look at something like Prince Harry proposing to Meghan Markle and she's literally filming it as he's doing it. It's all fake. It's all contrived. It's all prepared. Yeah. And true emotion is essentially private. If, it, if it's if it's not private, it's like donating to charity and telling everyone how you're donating to charity. No, it's yeah. supposed to be a private thing. Emotion is supposed to be a private thing. And stoicism or the stiff upper lip, whatever you want to call it, is is how you deal with things publicly. Whereas mm. privately, you can express emotion, you can grieve, mm. but it's a very private affair. I think that's what's been twisted mm. and made a... Uh, you know, something that was quintessentially English has been poisoned and sullied mm. by this regime narrative that tells us to do the opposite. Well, that's a great place to end it, dude. That's that was really good. Thanks for coming on and uh, enjoyed yeah. it, man. Yeah, speak soon. Um, and uh, thanks for coming on my podcast as well. And yeah, we'll I'm speak back. again. It's been fun. Yeah, please come come on again. Um, there's there's a lot of great people coming on the show. And uh, I think we need to talk about this Englishness more, this cultural thing, Definitely. more, traditional, 